Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewire News Group podcast hosted by the legal journalism team, half of which got back from Paris. We saw Beyonce. Oh my God, it was amazing. I'm Rewire News Group's editor at large, Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piccolo, Rewire News Group's executive editor. Rewire News Group is the one and only home for expert repro journalism that inspires you to. Hydrate, folks. June is going to be one hell of a month. And the Boom Lawyered podcast is part of that mission. So a big thanks to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners and viewers. And Imani, welcome back from Paris. Ah, it's so wonderful to see you. Yay. Oh, it's so wonderful to see you as well. Mm. And I got back just in time for the Supreme Court to ruin our summer. Ah, fuck. Yeah. yeah. Well, that. Yeah. Mm. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, people. To Sweaty SCOTUS season 2023. Dun And so we're gonna do a quick preview of the cases that we're waiting for the court to rule on. And yes, we will be doing reaction podcasts as these cases come down. So you should go ahead and subscribe to the Rewire News Group YouTube channel. That way you can be there with us live. You can ask us questions live and you can, you know, just watch as SCOTUS craps the bed again live. All right. Hmm. Let's talk about our first case, Jess. Okay. Yeah. Holland v. Brakeen. Let's. Yeah. Let's first what? up. Yeah. Holland v. Uh, v. Brakeen. And way back at the beginning of the season, Amani and I previewed this case. It's so important. And it's one of those that I feel like has really flown under the radar. And that's unfortunate given the stakes. So. What you need to know is that this is a cooked up challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, right? This is another example of conservatives doing politics via the courts. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act is a federal statute that's designed to keep native and indigenous children with family and tribal members when they're in child welfare proceedings like adoption, right? Yeah, it's it was a law that was passed specifically to remedy cultural genocide, right? Mm -hmm. The way we've treated indigenous folks since white, well, not we, because I didn't do shit, but the yeah. way white folks, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do nothing. But the way white folks treated indigenous people, obviously genocide, but they also yeah. engaged in a really sort of coordinated cultural genocide where they would take the children from their tribes, from their homes, from their land, and then pass them off to white people, to these right. boarding schools where they were systematically abused and degraded and stripped of their tribal identity. And, you know, this is obviously just white supremacy in action, right? And yep. even, you can even see it in the briefs, right? Texas argued in its brief that the law was unfair to the indigenous kids, to the kids that, that these white folks want to adopt, because the law says you got to place um, tribal, you got to place indigenous children with their tribes if you can, or mm -hmm. with another tribe if you can. And Texas said, but that's not fair, because you're depriving these indigenous children of, of living a white middle class life, right? You're depriving them of white middle class standards and values. That's what Texas actually argued. So... You know, they the, argued the genocide out loud. They did. They absolutely did. And so, you know, the ICWA is being challenged by these Christian evangelicals as unconstitutional because it discriminates against white people. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a real. That's really what they're doing. Really? And the conservatives on the court, the Fed Sox Six, they're poised to buy it, right? Yeah. The law essentially makes preferences. It makes preferences that inure to the benefit of indigenous people, not to the benefit of white Christians. But white Christians love saving babies, right? Like that's oh, why it's they like a hobby. Row. It's a hobby, man. They do jigsaw puzzles and save babies. Like that's what they do. <laughs> And they love the persecution narrative, right? Yes. The narrative oh that these these helpless, poor white folks, these upstanding, middle-class value-having white folks are just trying to do the right thing, right? They're yeah. just trying to adopt these babies, and the mean liberals, these mean racist liberals, won't let them. That's the narrative. And yeah. would it surprise you if the case was originally shopped, forum shopped in Texas, to Reed O'Connor? Who is I mean, basically like Maddie K. O. G. Maddie right? K. O. G. is a terrible thing. It sounds to like be. a it sounds like a weed strain. <laughs> o. G. K. O. G. Maddie K. Either way, Reed O'Connor was Maddie K. Before Maddie K. was Maddie K. Before Maddie K. was a twinkling in the eye of the Federalist Society, we had Reed O'Connor. But it's true; they literally like cooked up a challenge, said, what's a judge who, or where's a judge that can give us a ruling that we want? Oh, here's one. And they are. What's terrifying to me too is like that, the, that nugget that you just described is bad enough, but this case could actually reach even further than ICWA if the court buys the conservatives read of the Commerce Clause, which is really an issue here. For example, it could threaten federal child labor laws. Amani, right? Like your face is doing exactly the right thing. We are in that place. And we're already seeing that policy floated in states like Arkansas and Nebraska, where they're rolling back protections for how old you have to be to work, the kinds of working conditions you have. I mean, truly, like, let's go back to the Lochner era is what conservatives are doing. And it feels like they're trying to specifically pick a fight with the Biden administration here. And I'm just saying, this case may create precedent for them to say, Look, ICWA has, you know, overreach. So, too, do these other federal standards. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. But also maybe kids should get jobs. Like, if you're six years old, you're not making anything. Like, go work at a mine. Come on. But also American maybe values. kids should get jobs. <laughs> I, I jest, of course. But not only can this would, would this potentially undermine child labor law standards, but it could also threaten longstanding U.S. and tribal relations, right? Yeah. As part of sort of the penance for what the U.S. did to indigenous people, they created ICWA in order to right. sort of maintain indigenous tribes, maintain their families. And so, you know, by, by attempting to undermine this law, they're attempting to undermine tribal sovereignty writ large. Mm -hmm. And that goes beyond these child custody battles, right? It, it yep. moves into areas like oil and gas, right? You've mm. got tribal lands that are sitting on gold mines, essentially, you know, black gold mines. And there are companies in Texas, specifically, that would love to get their hands on that gold. <sighs> and, you know, one of the things that is truly indicative of the ways in which big business is really rooting for a bad outcome in this case the Brakeens, who are Chad and Julie Brakeen, who are the couple mm -hmm. at issue here, this is a custody battle. Yeah. It's a family law case. Family law. Right. They ran out of money, so they basically had to stop litigating. But then guess who flew in and decided to take the case pro bono? Who? Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. Excuse me? Gibson, goddamn Dunn, and Crutcher. That is a huge law firm. It is a 
big law firm. Why like is a $500 an hour billing law firm? But like for a second year associate, right? Yeah. Like partners are billing out at a grand for Jesus doing fuck all on the golf Christ. course. It is. So they're taking this case pro bono. Why? Because it benefits their other clients, right? It benefits their oil and gas clients to destroy right. tribal sovereignty so that they can get their hands on this land. It is way beyond just the battle over this one particular child. Well, that sucks. Yeah. You know what else sucks? Uh, the fact that the court is set to destroy affirmative action in the case Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. And one thing I want to say is that if you remember Becky with the bad grades, right? Abigail Fisher, the guy who, who litigated that case is the same guy behind these cases. It's two cases, one case against Harvard, one case against the University of North Carolina. And Edward Blum... Has been, this has been his mission. He has been trying to end affirmative action for, what, 10, 15, 20 years now? 30? That fucking guy. That fucking guy. Oh, God. And reverse racism and rewriting the Constitution around it is a theme this term Yeah, uh, for the court, right? Like, these affirmative action cases um, are, an, are, like, the perfect example of it. It's just my stomach hurts. Right. And conservatives have been trying... For decades to yes. get the court to declare that race-based admissions policies are unconstitutional. Yep. And it looks like they're finally going to get their way. And this court is going to rule that these policies are unconstitutionally racist. They're, it's a zero-sum game with white folks. If you, if you take into consideration a black kid and you give them an extra point, then you're necessarily deducting a point from a comparable white student. I mean, Sam Alito actually argued that in oral arguments. He made that statement in oral arguments. And so... Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's real bad. And to anybody who might be, I mean, I don't really think that listeners and viewers of the podcast fall into this category, but we have some new folks, so maybe you are. If you are under the impression that John Roberts, for example, will be reasonable in this case, please don't. There was some recent reporting that has come out in Slate um, that Dahlia Lithwick did with Rick Hansen that is all about uh, 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 William Rehnquist mm -hmm. and his legacy on the court. And hey, guess what? He was functionally an open segregationist. Yeah. Like even into the 90s. And he also happens to be John Roberts' mentor. He and thought Plessy. Plessy. He thought Plessy. I mean, Plessy he, versus Ferguson. How? He how? thought that was wrongly decided. How? People. How do you? How? I, so, but to Amani's point about it, about it being a zero-sum game, Renqu you know, this reporting shows that Rehnquist is like, look, the 14th Amendment is functionally supposed to be race-blind, right? We, it does not encourage integration at all. In fact, like, that would be a bad thing if we had it. It would be a bad thing if we had it. That's what John Roberts' mentor said, folks. So, mm -hmm. the writing is on the wall in this case, but... They literally will have to rewrite constitutional history to get to the outcome that they want, right? Mm -hmm. They are hoping for a ruling that declares the 14th Amendment is, quote unquote, race blind or, quote unquote, race neutral, right? So basically, some kind of decision that declares, as a country, Amani, we are post-racial. Mm, we God. are colorblind, like what John Roberts declared in Shelby County when the court gutted the Voting Rights Act. And this is where Kentaji Brown Jackson's presence on the court makes such a huge difference. Yes. Such a huge difference, right? Because conservatives are trying to make an originalist argument, right? They're trying to yeah. go back to 1868, I believe, is when the 14th Amendment was ratified and say, well, they didn't mean for it to really take into account race. No. They meant it to be race blind, which is absolutely preposterous. <laughs> what? It is 
absolutely preposterous. And and Jackson made it known during oral arguments how preposterous it was. She went back and read the hearings from mm-hmm. that time period and discussed at length the fact that these this was a reconstruction amendment. What yes. were we reconstructing? After the Civil War, right? This was an amendment that was specifically passed to to make to make black people's status in civic society equal to white people's. Now, did yes. it work? Nah. No, it didn't. We're, st- we're still here trying to figure that out. But for anyone to argue that the originalist position demands viewing the 14th Amendment as race blind is selling you something. They're selling, they're selling you white supremacy. That's what they're they doing. Are. And it's not accurate. It's, it's absolutely historically not factual. And, you know, I want to I want to point out as well that, you know, they built this case on the backs of Asian-American students. Right. This is supposedly a case about the ways in which Harvard's admissions policies and UNC's admissions policies are unfair to Asian-American students. Mm -hmm. But they don't care about Asian-American students. Right. They don't care about Asian-American students. They don't care about originalism. They don't care about precedent. Right. They don't care that they're trying to ask the Supreme Court to ban Use of race admission, race in admissions, excuse me, despite 40 years of precedent saying that schools could do that, right? 40 years of precedent, 12 justices nominated under nine different presidents have ruled time and again that schools may consider race as a factor, not as an ipso facto thing, but as a factor when considering school admissions. Yeah, it's just, it's gross. It is so gross and it just stinks of the white supremacy, as you said, and no coincidence that this case is being heard at the same time that we're seeing similar, quote unquote, colorblind arguments play out in cons- uh, in other spaces by conservatives, right? Like, look at the fight over school curriculums and this yeah. whole whitewashing of our history that's undergoing right now, like this idea that there's a very particular way, if at all, to talk about the history of child slavery in this country and the idea that what, you know, like it was somehow race neutral (laughs) i got nothing it doesn't even make any sense i got i got nothing you know but these these fights inform each other and they are all part of this wave of fascism and authoritarianism that has just fundamentally taken hold of the conservative movement and the supreme court is a co-conspirator in it co-conspirator is such a good word particularly given the given the sort of procedural fuckery that went on with these cases, right? All of them! There, well, all of them. But this one, specifically, yes. there are two cases, right? We've got the yeah. Harvard case. We've got the UNC case. The, the Supreme Court granted cert in the, Uni- in the University of North Carolina case before judgment. That means the Fourth Circuit didn't even have a chance to weigh in on the North Carolina case before the Supreme Court said, don't worry, we've got it. Because yeah. the Fourth Circuit probably would have ruled against the students for fair admissions. And the Supreme Court was like, we don't even need to get into all that. We're, don't bother wasting your time because we've got this. They just skipped it, the Fourth Circuit. Why? Why the fuck not? Because they can. Because, because they, can. they can. And I mean, so at this point, what we've got from coming out from the Supreme Court functionally is propaganda. Yes. Right? Like, and a reaction to the reality that if the conservatives were to play by the rules in any way, shape, or form, right? Whether it's in terms of college admissions policies, whether it's in terms of electoral politics, which we'll talk about later uh, in the podcast as well, they would be laughed and voted out of office to come for generations. Yeah. Nobody likes your bad ideas, folks. Yeah, your bad ideas are really bad. And the only They're way really that bad. you can get them through is to voter suppression. Yes. Yeah. 
and and rigging who gets to participate, who gets access to higher education, the information that we learn. Like you rig all the games, and that's how you stay in power. I, I mean, and that's such a critical point, right? It's it's about access to power. If you think about who gets to sit on the Supreme Court, who gets to become a senator, who gets to become president, right? It's a lot of people who go to Ivy League schools, yes, right? And if you can't get into an Ivy League school or if you can't get into a good school, then you are cut off from a pipeline to that particular lever of power. And what we need is more black people, more people of color, color, you know, pulling those levers of power. And we're being denied that access. Meanwhile, you know, Chadwick, you know, Hartman III, whose daddy built the library at at Harvard or who renovated the gym at University of North Carolina. And, you know, everyone in the family, everyone in the Hartman family has gone. I love this hypothetical Hartman family. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone in that family has gone to these schools. So what? So little Jimmy, even though he's got like a C plus average, he's getting into these schools with this crap grades because of legacy. But are these people going after legacy admissions? No. no. I was going to say, and, and then he becomes president. And you just described George Bush. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's frightening. What else is frightening? <sighs> okay. We got to talk about this 303 creatives case versus Alanis. Like, it is. It First is. of all, as a Coloradan, let me apologize for what is about to happen to the First Amendment. I feel like that needs to be said. I mean, it's not really our fault. It's not. We didn't do anything. We We definitely don't agree with the Alliance Defending Freedom in this case at all. I'm just saying it's kind of weird that the two cases that are really trying to crack at LGBTQ rights on the First Amendment have both been cooked up by the Alliance Defending Freedom and come out of a very lovely state, by the way. It is a lovely state. (laughs) Fresh mountain air and everything. (laughs) Okay, but this 303 Creatives versus Elena's, this is another case where the court is set to completely rewrite constitutional law in order to enact part of its agenda, in this case, using First Amendment free speech protections to allow evangelical business owners to discriminate against LGBTQ folks. This has been a mission of theirs since the marriage equality decision came down, right? I mean, truly, this was like one of their laser focus points. Conservative legal advocacy groups brought this case on behalf of a website designer out of Colorado who doesn't want to make wedding websites for same-sex couples because, Amani, mm. her websites are art. Yeah, sure they And are. designing them for same-sex couples is the same thing, basically, as being forced to make art with a political message that she doesn't agree with. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah, her websites are Tracks. art. Yeah, okay, Tracks, sure, right? buddy. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, really, like, the TLDR is that this is another attempt by conservatives to get the court to create some kind of legal shield so that evangelical business owners can disregard whatever civil rights laws they want to, right? And in this case, we've got a fight over Colorado, a particular Colorado civil rights protection that prohibits business owners from discriminating against LGBTQ folks and, and couples in the delivery of services. It's a pretty straight forward anti-discrimination ordinance and if the alliance defending freedom gets their way evangelicals will have the opportunity to really go after these in all 50 states so that's fun well that's fun this case is also another opportunity for the court to make an absolute mockery of the standing requirement in the constitution god is it the constitution requires that a person have an injury before they can file a lawsuit, right? You can't just be some random guy who wants to file lawsuits, but you don't have any injury. There's nothing that the court can remedy. You just like being in court. That's not the way it works, right? 
So here we have a woman who doesn't have any injury because she is complaining that she doesn't want to make websites for same-sex weddings. Yeah. But guess what? Hmm. She doesn't make weddings or websites for weddings. She has not been asked by a single same-sex couple to make a wedding website for them. What she is essentially seeking is an advisory opinion from the highest court in the goddamn land. An advisory opinion saying, if at some point in the future I decide that I want to expand my business and start making websites for weddings, I don't want to have to make websites for same-sex weddings. That is bananas. Like, nobody wants your crappy website designs, lady. <laughs> like, nobody does. Apparently you don't either because you're not fucking making them. And so honestly, what are we doing here? Don't doesn't the Supreme Court have real actual live disputes to be settling? Like, don't the justices have something better to be doing with their time? And if not, shouldn't we consider some reforms? Because apparently they have too much goddamn time on their hands. Honestly, and they're they're just when it comes to standing as of late, they have acted like absolute jackasses. Apparently, Completely. Article 3 of the Constitution doesn't really mean anything. For example, no. look at the Mifepristone case, right? Oh, Jesus. Th- these, pro- these quote-unquote pro-life doctors who are basically saying that they have standing, they are saying that they have an injury because they're being asked to do their jobs. Because somewhere some person might have a complication, one of those very, very, very rare complications from Mifepristone, and they may end up in the emergency room, and the emergency room doctor might have to give abortion care, might have to do their job. It is not an injury that someone asks you to do your job. It's simply not. Neither are abortion sads, which is basically what they're saying. Like, I don't like abortion and I might be around it somewhere and I don't know, catch a case of the abortion. I don't know. Like, it's it's wild. And you're right. Like, you got to have an injury, guys. Like, you need to have an injury. If you're not making a wedding website, then you can't ask the Supreme Court to tell you that you don't have to make wedding websites for certain people. Yeah, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) And honestly, like, Alliance Defending Freedom, what are you doing? Could you not find a better plaintiff? Find a plaintiff that actually does the things that you want to say that they don't have to do. Good Uh, God almighty. And like I mentioned at the upfront of this case, uh, 303 Creatives builds off another Colorado case, Masterpiece Cake Shop. Amani and I have talked about Masterpiece Cake Shop so much on this podcast. I was in D.C. covering it. It was one of the, like, oh, my God, I remember those oral arguments very well. But anyway, another Alliance Defending Freedom case, and they tried the same argument, but they couldn't quite get the court to bite. Yeah. Well... Guess what, Jess? Hmm. There's a new court in town. Fucking hell. I mean, but that's the exact truth, right? Like, they're getting a second crack at at this case because they have a new court. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Ugh. And, you know, like the other cases that we've described so far in this episode, this one, too, could have really far-reaching potential. If anything is creative, right, and can be shielded from complying with civil rights laws, then, Imani, this is, you know, lawyers love to talk about limiting principles Mm -hmm. all the time. Where is the limiting principle? And this was something that came up in the oral argument, specifically in Masterpiece Cake Shop that I remember between uh, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Do you remember when they were going back and forth about sandwich artists at Mm -hmm. Subway? Yes. Right? Like, if you make a foot long 
are you a creative that require that is now allowed protection from serving that sandwich to somebody who is queer? I don't, you know, There's that's no- where we're at. There's no stopping. Exactly. And again, I have to point out, this is the Alliance Defending Freedom relitigating their cause. They litigated Masterpiece Cake Shop in 2016. It's now like eight years later. And they later, lost. And they freaking lost. And now it's eight years later and they're they're doing, they're basically litigating the same case. And, but what's even worse, at least in Masterpiece Cake Shop, Jack Baker, whatever the fuck his name was, Jack Phillips, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> but baking cakes. Right. But he, he had actually been asked to bake a cake yeah. for a same-sex couple and he didn't want to. So ostensibly, he, he believed that he was injured. Ostensibly, there was some remedy that the Supreme Court could offer him. There's no remedy the Supreme Court can offer this lady because she doesn't do anything. Do something first, lady. Do something first. And also, Alliance Defending Freedom, stop trying to get second bites at the apple in cases that you fucking lose. Yeah, just take the L Take like the an adult. L, man. God damn it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next up, we got to talk about Morvie Harper. Oh, do we? This case is hard. Yeah, I, this I, case is really <laughs> hard. We honestly did like a 50-minute episode. It was like we a did. schoolhouse rock style episode on Morvie Harper that delved so deep into it that we could barely get ourselves out of it. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to just explain. Thank you. I'm not going to make you sit through all that. But I do want to explain that this is the case that's about the independent state legislature theory, right? This yeah. is the theory that... State legislatures can do whatever they want when it comes to the elections clause, when it comes to setting the time, place, and manner of federal elections. They can do whatever they want, unconstrained by a state court's interpretation of the state constitution as to whether or not what the legislature did was constitutional. So North Carolina Republicans essentially are trying to argue that they don't have to listen to what the state Supreme Court says. The state Supreme Court threw out the North North Carolina racist gerrymandered maps. And Republicans did not like that. So they said, you can't do that. Why? Because the elections clause says that it is exclusively the jurisdiction of the state legislature to run federal elections. But what they fail to point out is that Jim Bob Madison and John Adams and all those old white dudes believe that the legislature. Jim Bob Madison. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jimmy, Jimmy Lee Madison believed that the state legislative apparatus included the governor's veto, included the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution. Why? Because the state legislature is a creature of the Constitution. So, of course, it must be constrained by the Constitution. Who interprets the Constitution? The goddamn state Supreme Court. Like, so, you know, and first of all, I want to say that the Supreme Court in the oral arguments didn't really seem to be too excited or enamored with this theory because, frankly, it would crack democracy wide open, and I'm not sure that they're willing to go there just yeah, yet. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope here. That So that was an excellent example. That was probably one of the clearest examples of Moore versus Harper I've ever heard, first of all. So, like, Thank you. that was fantastic. <laughs> no, truly, the case is so complicated, and it's one of those that the consequences are so important because, as Amani said, it absolutely could crack democracy democracy open. I mean, functionally, it allows 
uh, gerrymandered and con conservative captured state legislatures to act with abandon and no check within their state constitutional apparatus on the state Supreme Court. And that's really important because state Supreme Courts have act as a buffer in a lot of really important ways. Like recently, look at what Oklahoma has done with regards to some of the abortion bans that were passed, or most recently, the state Supreme Court in South Carolina blocking the six-week abortion ban there. Like they serve as important checks on state constitutional um, issues, which don't always mirror federal constitutional issues. There right. are a lot of state constitutions that have greater privacy protections, for example, mm -hmm. than the federal constitution. Anyway, the good news is, is that there was some maneuvering while the court had heard oral arguments and before they've issued any opinion yet that suggests that they might punt on this. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't seem that enthusiastic about it during oral arguments. As Amani said, it's a really complicated and dangerous theory, although I do think that there are a couple of conservatives on the court willing to go that far, far including Brett Kavanaugh, um, even though he try, was trying to sound reasonable in arguments. And, you know, I just think that maybe they don't want the smoke, hopefully. It's like right before this huge presidential election that we've got, like maybe they maybe they just don't want the smoke. They don't want the smoke of maybe Trump trying to overturn state electors, right? Like if Trump is that's running what'll again, happen. that is what will happen. If state legislatures don't have to listen to the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, then they can just do what they want with federal elections, whatever they want. And that's, yeah. that's not how the founders wanted it. And you know Republicans love dry humping the founders. Right, including instilling their guy despite what the voters say, which yeah. is exact which is exactly what, you know, the, that team's hoping for. Well, that's fucking grim. Yeah. It is. It's grim. <laughs> I mean, this is like last last term was a shit show with with Dobbs. With Dobbs, but yeah. But this term really is about continuing that white supremacist, that white Christian nationalist project, yep. right? Of just erasing groups from civic society of undermining their voting rights. There's this case, Merrill v. Milligan, which is also about whether or not black yep. people will be able to vote in Alabama. Like, this yeah. is all there about... There aren't that many black folks in Alabama anyway, am I? Hardly any. I mean, this is really all about erasing, you know, black people from civic society, LGBTQ people from civil society, and just imposing white supremacy. And I don't want to, I don't want to live that way. Yeah. I and you know... Dobbs really made, that makes this possible, not even just in like a direct line of, of precedent. It's not like every single one of these cases we talked about on this episode will quote Dobbs. In fact, probably none of them will. But at the same time, Dobbs was the first domino in terms of completely disregarding precedent and full norms, right? The court took Dobbs because they could. The court allowed the change of the main question to actually overturn Roe versus Wade versus just uphold the Mississippi statute under Roe because mm -hmm. they could. They issued a decision that swept away over 40 years of precedent because they could. And now they know that they can do it in case after case after case after case, yeah. unless some kind of wide-scale reform happens. Yeah. This is the Harlan Crow Court now. I'm not even going to call it the Roberts Court anymore. I'm calling it no. the Crow Court. It you is the Crow Court. It's the Crow that Court. That works on so many levels. Right. And, and for those who may not recall, Harlan Crow is that Nazi memorabilia enthusiast who was paying Clarence Thomas's adopted grandnephew, whatever, school tuition and allowing Clarence's mama to live in his house. I mean, this is, this, it's just corruption all the way down. And we're going to see that play out as these decisions come down. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. All right. Let's get a drink. Yeah, let's do that. That's a good idea. I like that. That idea. sounds so much better than this. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But you should remind folks. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We, so like we just went through all these. And so the court never 
tells us ahead of time when the decisions are coming down. They're just like, oh, hey, you know what? Tomorrow feels like a good day to drop four opinions. We're going to do that. <laughs> and so we are watching the court um, like a hawk, uh, waiting for these decisions to come down. We will be breaking the news on our social platforms and doing a live stream reaction when these decisions so come down. So please stay tuned. Uh, make sure and subscribe to the YouTube channel so you get notifications about that. Um, this is Sweaty Scotus season for a reason, Amani. It is sweaty, sweaty, sweaty Scotus season well if you'd like to talk to jess or uh me about sweaty to season or beyonce in paris honestly, oh god yeah um, right? you can follow me on twitter at angry black lady you can follow jess on twitter at hegemami we're also both on blue sky now so <gasps> we if you're are on blue sky we're l more likely to see your comment because there are fewer people and our mentions yes. won't be just you know it's actually nice it's actually nice over there so come say hi to us on blue sky and uh Oh, follow Rewire News Group on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. We're on TikTok now, I think. Are we? YouTube. You, the YouTubes. And hopefully we're going to get Rewire News Group on Blue Sky soon as well. But barring all of that, what are we going to do, Jess? We're going to see you on the tubes, folks. We're going to see you on the tubes, folks. Mm -hmm.